0: So Genesis 35 and 36. 36, I'm just going to touch on 36, because it's another genealogy. It's Esau's genealogy. So there's a couple things I'll cover in that, but most of our time is going to be spent in 35. So last week, Joel preached on 34, and remember, that was one of those crazy chapters. There was the two brothers, Simeon and Levi, that took care of all of the people of Shechem, and Joel talked a lot about, there is this idea of the this spiritual attack, right? They were, they were wanting to absorb Israel, the fledgling Israel, into their um, into their people, into their, you know, go against God's plan. If we can become one with them and just eradicate the idea of this covenant and this inheritance, then we get all their stuff. That's what was going on there. Didn't turn out that way. But there was that image that Joel left us with of Jesus reaching out for us. And it was, he was talking about the bloody Jesus, right? His blood. And it was very striking. So hopefully if you didn't get to hear that, go back and listen to that sermon. And it was, it was pretty powerful. Now We're going to jump right into this. I'm not going to read it first. We're going to walk through it. And there's one particular verse in here that we're going to go over and come back to, because that's going to be kind of the focus of the message. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 35, verse 1. I'm in the ESV. And God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So here we have another appearance. I've pointed this out before. God has appeared several times. In one ch- the last time I preached, I think it was five times in one chapter. God had appeared to Jacob. And here we have another appearance. And he's telling him, go back to Bethel. We were, you were already there once, and you had a vision there. And dwell there, he says. It's an unspecified amount of time. He doesn't say go to Bethel and then go somewhere else. He says go live there. That's what I want you to do right now. And he's (coughs) reiterating. Boy, this is going crazy today. What's going on? He's reiterating the fact that Esau wanted to kill him, Esau wanted to get rid of him. Esau wants to get revenge for the fact that Jacob stole his birthright. And that's the reason that Jacob left in the first place. And we'll. Cover that a little bit later, but if you remember, his mother told him, she's, She says, You need to go and get out of here before your brother, give your brother time to cool down. And then she turns around and tells her husband, I want him to go to my relatives and get a wife from there because I don't like the women here. So he told, she told Jacob one thing and she told uh, Isaac another in the same instance. So there was a We talked about this before, there's a lot of deceit going on, a lot of crazy things happening with those people. One thing I want to point out from the last time that Esau and Jacob met after he wrestled with God, and they were at the River Jabbok, and Jacob was very insistent that Esau take his gifts. How many people remember that? He had all these gifts, and Esau's like, I don't need anything, I have everything I need, and he's like, no, no, you need to take it, you need to take it, you need to take it. Why was he like that? Well, it turns out from archeological information on tablets related to these people in this time period, he, if, if Esau took his gifts, he was legally not allowed to attack him and kill him anymore. It was like, if I give you this and you accept it, now we're friends, we have a treaty. You can't hurt me anymore. So Jacob was still looking out for himself and wanted to make sure that, okay, If I can get him to take these, I'm going to save myself a little bit, give myself a little bit more um, protection, I guess. And remember the end of last chapter, what did Jacob, after his sons had done what they had done, he comes to them and he's like, what did you guys do? I'm going to be a stink to all of the people, and they're going to come try to kill all of us. Why did you do that? And their response was like, Well, you can go back and read it. And uh, (laughs) it is a family service. So if we go into verse 2, God is going to take care of that problem. God is going to take care of that issue that Jacob brings up that he's worried about. Again, he's worried about his own skin. It's like, everyone's going to attack us. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So these two verses are the ones that we're going to focus on for most of this sermon, but I'm going to come back to them. So we're going to go through the rest of the text in this section, talk about it, and then we'll come back and dwell on that. Verse 5, And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So here's God saying, I will take care of this situation. Again, God is giving him his protection. He gave him a command, you go to Bethel and live there, and based on the stuff that had happened last time, God's going to make a way so they can go there. No problem. No issues. Verse 6. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because their God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So Bethel means house of God. Elbethel means God, house of God. It's like double... Double whammy. This is the second time he says in verse 6, he and all the people with him. In verse 2, he said all the people with him. Besides his wives and his children, there were also a bunch of other people that were part of this fledgling fledgling nation of Israel. They were servants. There were their families. They had all their cattle and all their stuff. But it wasn't just Jacob, and his bloodline. It was also a bunch of other people. And it's interesting to note prophetically that as God creates this nation out of no nation, he's using people from various places to start this up. This is what he did with the church. The church is made up of people from all nations. There is no genetic Christian, right? You're not, you don't trace your bloodline to decide whether or not you're in... Christ or not. That is a decision and a relationship that you have. And by virtue of that relationship, you are now part of the family. And you have that citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. (coughs) So, just to point that out, in the beginning, it wasn't just Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There was a whole bunch of other people that were also part of this. And historically, anyone could become a Jew. And there was no difference between a Jew that had, that had the bloodline of you know, Jacob's sons and one that didn't. As long as you got circumcised, went into the thing, said, I want to become a Jew, they accepted you in as a full member of Judaism. This is in contrast to something like, for example, Islam, where if you are not Arabic, you you have a second set of laws that apply to you. So you can become a follower of Islam, but you are not at the same level as someone who is a physical Arab. And people don't realize that. They have a class system built in to what they're doing. Verse eight, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called her name Alon Bakuth, which means place of sorrow. This is the first we've heard of Deborah. She's not been mentioned before. It's like out of the blue, Rebecca's made Deborah. When Rebecca is given a maid by her, uh, by her father when they get married, her name's not mentioned. So we don't know that that maid was Deborah. And if that maid was Deborah, this woman would be over 100 years old at this point. And when did she show up? Because when Jacob went to Pat and Aram... He was alone. He didn't have anything. So now, where'd she come from? So if we jump back to Genesis 27, this is one explanation for where this woman came from and whether or not she was the original maid of Rebekah. She probably wasn't, but it doesn't say. So Genesis chapter 27, verse 43. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. This is Rebekah talking to Jacob. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother and Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why would I be bereft of both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Pretty dramatic. However, she says she's going to send for him. So one explanation that people put forth is that at some point, she sent one of her maids to go find Jacob and say, hey, it's time to come home. We don't really know. It's just interesting. But he buried her under a, it says, oak. And that word we saw before, the terebinth tree in verse 2, where he buries the idols, that's also the same tree. So we have... One place he's burying all his idols and then the next time he has to, he's putting to rest someone in his group. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. So this is the second time in this passage that God shows up. When he came from Pat and Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. This happened already once, right? When he wrestled with the angel all night long, that's what he said. He asked him what his name was. He said his name was Jacob. He said, no, now your name is Israel. He's reiterating that same thing. This is reinforcing the covenant that every time God reinforces his covenant, so he started it with Abraham, it went to Isaac, and now it's through Jacob. He changes it. He adds a little bit more detail into it. So now he's telling him. Verse 11, I am. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Where have you heard that before? Be fruitful and multiply in Eden, right? A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Now remember, when God told Abraham, you will be a great nation and all other nations will be blessed because of you, he doesn't mention kings. So he, God is adding more information. He's saying a nation and a company of nations. Not just one nation, there will be many nations. And kings will come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring, to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. So not only does he iterate Israel's name, he iterates his own name. He says, I am God Almighty. Just in case you're wondering who I am, this is who I am. He reiterates the inheritance. And this idea of be fruitful and multiply does go back. That was the first command God gave to mankind with Adam and Eve. That's what he told them. So this is going to reiterate back to that. Verse 14. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. The thing that this chapter, there's a lot of little, separate little activities that happen, but a lot of them are very powerful. What is Jacob doing right here? He's engaging in worship. What is the normal response for when you come face to face with God? Are you reading your word? You're praying. You're praying with your brothers and sisters. What should our response be? It should be to worship God. He's the one. What does worship mean? Worthship. Who's worthy? God's worthy. He's the one that we're supposed to give our hearts to. He's the one we're supposed to give our lives to. He's the one that we're supposed to elevate above everything else in our life. Right? Right? And if we don't elevate him above other things, what do we call that? Anybody? Idolatry? Yeah, that's the word. And that's what we're going to talk about later. Idolatry. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor. And she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you have another son. And her soul was depart, as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb where it is to this day. Israel journeyed, and journeyed on, and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Now, they're already in the edges of the land of Canaan right now. The the truth of the matter is, is that all of the children of Israel, except Benjamin, were born outside of the promised land. You could say that They were born in exile because that's what Jacob was doing. He was running away and going into exile for some amount of time. It turned out it was about 20 years. So now we have the first son that is actually born in the promised land that God said to Abraham, I'm giving you all of this land. This is going to be your nation. This is going to be your place. This is going to be it for you guys. And now we're finally starting to see this come to fruition. They're bringing them back in. But then we're going to get another exile. They're going to be exiled to Egypt. And they're going to be there for 400 years. Then we're going to see an <coughs> excuse me, another exile. That one's to Babylon. And the whole nation of Israel is going to be taken away to Babylon. And that exile, how long did that one last? Long time? Like until 1948? 2,000 2, year Exile? And then God started bringing back the people of Israel into the country. And there's still people, still Isra- Israelis, living in different parts of the planet that have not come back. So there's still people that are living in a traditional exile, which is it's crazy. But God has continued to watch over this nation and bring them back in because he promised that he would do that. We also, every person that's born is in exile from God. You're living in the kingdom of sin, and when God calls you and gives you a chance to accept him, you make that relationship with Christ, you become one of his children, you're no longer in exile. Now you're part of the kingdom. So you were outside of the kingdom. Now you're in the kingdom. So God ties all these things together and continually is showing us his plan and his understanding of how things go, and we just that's why we study this word. That's why we go back and we read in Genesis, because here it is again, a picture of what it is to be in the church and what the church is. And Here's verse 22, because I can't have a sermon without something related to this in it. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Yeah, that's great. Another crazy event, We don't know why he did it, but we do know, again, from some similar archaeology, this was a standard practice. When you wanted to take over from your father and usurp his position and become the head of the family, this was how you would show him disrespect and show everyone else around that, hey, I'm the man now. I'm in charge. This is what Absalom did to David. Exact same thing. And Absalom's not very wise counselors told him, go do this. This is how you're going to prove that you're in charge now. Now, nothing comes of this in terms of Reuben's not in charge. It just says Israel heard of it. And again, like David, he doesn't seem to do anything about it. He doesn't punish him. It's just, here it is, this one little verse. And we don't hear anything about it. Again, until later, what happened here is Reuben immediately forfeited his birthright because remember, Reuben's the oldest. And when Jacob's handing out the blessings later, we get to that in going through the stuff with Joseph, he is blessed. His blessing isn't so good because of what he does here is what most scholars believe that's the reason that his blessing was so bad because of what he did here. I I was thinking about it, it's like maybe maybe he was just super upset because of the fact that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, Reuben's mom. And all of those years, he's seeing this favoritism that's played out between Jacob, between Leah and Rachel. And maybe he's like, you know what? I'm sick of it. I'm gonna do something about this. I'm going to take over and now make sure that my mom's line is the one that's most important in this family. That's all just speculation. Now we move on to the next verse, the last part of 22. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Pad and Aram. And just like I said before, born and formed in exile except for Benjamin. And that goes with the multiple exiles that I just mentioned. Verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So now we see there's a little bit of a reunion going on because they worked together in order to bury their father. And we are now firmly back in the land of Canaan. We're back in the promised land. So we have, between Esau and Jacob, Esau has, has accepted these gifts from Jacob, and then he said, okay, Jacob, let's live together, I'll go to Seir, where he lives, which is also called Edom, and he says, you come, and Jacob says, yeah, I'll be there, and what does Jacob do? He immediately goes, I'm not going there, I'm going somewhere else, I don't want to be near my brother, legally, he shouldn't be able to hurt me anymore, but he still doesn't trust it, but now they're together for this, for this burial. But there's not a true reconciliation going on here so what we have to think of is the two brothers are representing two different things and we will see this in chapter 36 Jacob is representing the inheritance that was given by God through this line to create a new nation the nation of Israel God's chosen people as opposed to all the nations that already exist And if we remember back to Genesis chapter 6 and following Deuteronomy chapter 32, God gave the nations over to the rebellious spirits, the other angels, as a punishment. He said, you will be in charge of these nations, and I will not claim any of those nations. I'm going to create a new nation. And that's what he's been doing. Esau was part of that inheritance, right? Right? He was the firstborn. He was a son of Abraham. He was in that crowd, and then he despised his birthright, but he still could have been part of the family because what did the prophecy say? It says the elder shall serve the younger. So it said Esau would serve Jacob. But what what does Esau do? Well, in chapter 36, it gives a little summary for it. Before it goes through, he left And he started his own thing. He basically rejected God's plan and said, I am going to create my own nation, not underneath the authority of that inheritance and that covenant. I'm going to do my own thing. And we see that they become the traditional enemies of Israel. So in chapter 36, we're going to cover it very quickly. I'm not going to read through a giant list of names and have you laugh at my pronunciation. And we also know that, the, we've said it before, these, these genealogies are bookends. So this closes off the, the basic creation of, Is, of Israel, and we move into Joseph for the next many chapters. And there's a lot of really cool things about Joseph and what he represents and for the church and for Israel, but we're not, I'm not going to spoil all that. Someone else will be preaching. So we have, let's see, the genealogy of Esau, chapter 36. It lists, one of the things that I'll point out is that it lists all of his, down the line, all of his different ancestors or descendants, sorry, became kings. There's a huge nation that comes out of here. And in multiple places, it talks about Edom or Edom. In Isaiah, for example, God states he's going to destroy Edom. It's one of the few places that he keeps calling out over and over again in prophecy and says, I am going to come and destroy these people in the day of the Lord. And Esau is called Edom in 36.1. If you look at that verse, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom, right? Right? And then it also is repeated later on in verse 12, I believe. But this is the big thing that we need to know, and it says at the end of it that Esau... Let's see, what am I thinking? Sorry. Amalek, that's the one I want to talk about. So Amalek is one of the names of the descendants that are in here. And the Amalekites, we've heard of the Amalekites before. So when the Moses and the Jews are coming out of Egypt and they're going along the way on the road, they get attacked out of the blue. And that's the one where Moses, when he holds up his staff, the Israelites are winning. And when the staff comes down, they're losing. And then Aaron and his sister like hold up the staff so that they can win the battle. Remember that? That's the Amalekites that they're fighting in that battle. And they attacked them several other times. And they're always a historical enemy, and even to this day, because the people of Edom are the ones that have spread out into the Arabian Valleys and those countries, and they're mostly descended, not 100%, from Esau's tribes. And they're still the enemies of Israel today. They want Israel to be gone. And we know that that's a huge political hot button today. So this same plan that was put into place when Je- Esau says, "I'm not, I'm not going to deal with these people anymore, and I'm going to do my own thing," he's still doing his own thing, and it's caused a lot of destruction and and bloodshed. And they also point out at the end that. Edom had kings before Israel had kings. It's like a little dig. It's like before Israel ever had a king, we had a bunch of them. But it's kind of funny. Now, that's all I want to say about chapter 36. You can read chapter 36, and if you find anything in there that you think needs to be addressed, let me know. But mostly it's just daddy and son, and daddy and son, and you know. And a lot of his wives are listed, and, and all the different people that it were part of that the creation of the nation. So let's jump back to Genesis 35, two through four. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress that, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that he, they had, and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Well, the first thing I'd like to do is put this in the context of the first three commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 7. You shall have no other gods before me. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. So the section in Genesis chapter 35 and these verses, what are they related to? They're related to idolatry. So what does that mean for us as being children of the Most High by the sacrifice of Jesus, who is the Messiah, and the new covenant in his blood? So the first thing I'll want to bring up is talk about the third commandment. You will not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So this has an underlying assumption, right? That you can take the name of the Lord God, not in vain. We always focus on the fact that this is telling us don't do this. But there is a thing that you do. You take God's name. And a lot of people always seem to think that taking God's name in vain means that you say the words in a, you know, bad way, like you're cussing and you're using God's name in vain. That's not really the focus of what this is. This is the adoption. This is becoming an imager, meaning bearing the image of God in a purposeful, intentional way. You're taking God's name on yourself visibly. This is what baptism is. Baptism shows you shows everyone that you are taking God's name. You're saying I belong to God's family. I am part of it. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. His blood has washed me clean and made me perfect for eternity. That's what you're saying when you get baptized. That is what it means to take God's name. So when you take it in vain, what does that mean? You're not being obedient. Jesus said, If you obey my words, then others will know, and you, you will obey my words if you're mine. He also said, People will know you, that you're a Christian, by your love one for another. He also said that to obey him is to love him. He said all of these things to us, and we've all heard these verses many times. So when I'm acting outside of love, and specifically love that's empowered by the Holy Spirit through Christ, then I'm, I'm, do, I'm living my life in vain. I'm showing the name of God, only I'm not actually bearing it properly. I'm bearing it in a way that is, people can look at that and go, so this is what a believer in God is like? Who is this guy, you know, what are you, what are you doing? A public declaration of being a part of God's family is a big deal. And really what, you're, what I'm doing when I'm not bearing the image of God in a proper way is I'm just being selfish. I'm focusing on myself instead of on Christ and I'm not focusing on others the way Christ would have me focus. So it's usually my own, my own desires, my own ideas, my own attitudes. That's what I'm pursuing at that particular time. Idols are transactional. They're not relational. Idols will provide an illusion of control, like a checklist. In the conventional wisdom, there's many verses in the Old Testament that talk about making of idols and how worthless idols are, right? So you have these great passages where Isaiah will say, so there's a carpenter, and he goes out and he cuts down a tree. And he brings a tree, and he finishes it, and he makes a chair, and he makes a bowl. And he sits on the chair, and he eats out of the bowl, and then he makes an idol, and he carves it, and he makes it all nice, and then he sets it there, and then he bows down to it and says, you're, oh my God, save me. And we think that's kind of dumb. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? But there's all of these different passages where that exact thing is explained, metal workers, metal workers you know, making a, a set of silverware and then turning around and making a God with the same metal and then bowing down to it. Right? They say they can't <clears throat> they can't speak, they can't walk, they can't do anything, they can't save you. That's what that picture is given to us in the Old Testament over and over again in in verses about idols. And In our society, we think that's, you know, like I said, we think it's ignorant, we think it's silly. None of us would ever really do that. I'm not going to go down to the store and buy some stuff and carve out something and bow down to it and say, save me. There is a spiritual dimension to idolatry. And we know, again, archaeologically, the way that people actually worshipped is they would make these idols out of material. And then they would pray to the God they were worshiping to inhabit that idol, and then miracles are recorded related to that process. So if someone destroyed the idol, they didn't really care. They did not actually believe their God was in the idol. They didn't. So again, we don't want to think of them as being simpler or more ignorant than they actually were. We are not smarter. We do not have all the answers. So whenever we look back and see people in ancient history and just decide they were just dumb, we know all the stuff, it's actually not true at all. We're probably dumber in many ways. We don't have to memorize everything now. We just have to go look it up on Google. And then five seconds later, forget what it was I just looked up. Or get sidetracked on the webpage and go, wait a minute, I was going to Google for a specific reason and now I don't know what that was. But this is a really cool video, so I'm gonna watch that. So again, this conventional wisdom, idols, they're just made by hands. They can't see, hear, and feel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, however, verses 14 through 22. You can turn there if you like. Paul talking. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to a sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless... He's talking about communion now. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything And then the famous Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in the Greek, those words, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, those are all names. They are titles that are Demonic. They are are names of demonic beings. They've always been in the scripture. They're always there in the Greek. It's just we didn't translate it that way. But these verses are clearly stating that there's non-human celestial beings involved in idolatry. It's not a nothing. It is a something. And And Paul said in the beginning of that verse, flee from it. Run away from it. Like I said before, we don't uh, typically participate in these things. But there are active religions on this planet today that still follow those old practices. Hinduism is the biggest example. How many gods are in Hinduism? Anybody know? It's like at least 8,000. 8,000 gods that you can please by creating altars to, and doing the thing that that God requires of you. No one sacrifices all 8,000, but there's people that will sacrifice to a bunch to try to make sure that life goes good. Again, I said this is transactional. With an idol, I do the checklist, and it's supposed to bless me. I am supposed to do something, and I get something in return. Now, Has anyone ever treated God like that in history, ever? How about in this room? I've treated God like that. Jacob was like, blatant example. If you come with me and save me and give me all the wealth and all the cool stuff, I will serve you. It'll be great. That's a transaction. That's not a relationship. Jesus didn't die to do transactions with us. He's not a cosmic ATM where I go put in my card and I get out, you know, blessing and and wonderful things. So we don't need to participate in those things. And we don't, generally. How many of you have ever literally bowed down to an idol? Anyone? I mean, every once in a while you'll meet somebody who actually did because they came out of a different practice and became a Christian. And they're like, yeah, I used to do that. But we don't really do that. So what do we do? If we jump back to the text, Jacob is saying, purify yourself and get rid of the idols and prepare to meet God. There's three steps. You gather up your idols, you figure out what they are, you turn them over, and you purify yourself and clean yourself. He, says, he even t- tells them, change your clothes. Like, clean yourself up. And you remember the gods that Rachel stole from her father? We called them the teraphim, and they gave legal authority, like you would give them to your children, and then they could prove to all the other peoples around there that you owned this land, and you owned this cattle, and everything was yours. So besides it being a household god, it was also a legal token of ownership. I'm guessing those same gods that she stole were part of the ones that they turned over to Jacob to bury, because this just happened. There's not much time between her stealing these and them fleeing, and this point in the text. And there were other gods besides just those that she stole, that other people had, that they were bringing with them in order to meet God, right? Now, if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've probably heard lots of sermons about modern-day idols. Anyone? Have you ever heard a sermon? Someone preached to you about having an idol in your life? Christ saying, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and money, right? That's the obvious example of an idol that people make. But this is about a heart issue. What are we doing practically daily for our focus of satisfaction, security, and the future? The thing that you are focusing on for these different areas of your life is either God or it's an idol. It's actually very simple. It's also very hard to deal with. The really insidious thing is that many of the things that we go through life with are jobs, our relationships, our families, the entertainment. They're all perfectly reasonable things. There's nothing wrong with them at all in and of themselves. And God actually gives us a passion for doing things in our lives He lets you enjoy and just love, for example, your work and your relationships and different things. And God is pouring out all of these things in your life and giving you this passion for these things. And pursuing them can be a God-honoring activity and should be a God-honoring activity, trying to keep him first in our hearts and minds. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow do to change. So this is great, great things. Like if you love your work, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. And God can be part of that transaction, that relationship that you you know, this, the relationship you have with your work. It's not the same kind of relationship I was talking about before, but you understand what I mean. The problem is, is that it's really easy to slip your focus. For example, when things aren't going well, and you need to pay the bills. And your checking account runs out of money before the bills run out. Anybody ever been there? I've been there. You know, not lately, which is great, but been there. We need the money, and we start to transfer our loyalty to the money, and not realize it. It becomes a thing we start to pursue. And all of a sudden, we have an idol in our life that we didn't even realize was happening. And there's lots of different things that that can come to. I mean, I had to struggle a lot this week on this topic because I had to say, well, if I'm gonna preach about this, I need to go look in here, see what's going on with me, right? What are my idols? What are the things that I am actually looking to for satisfaction? So I've said before, I have tinnitus. My ears ring all the time, 24-7. It never stops. And by the time the end of the day gets around, my brain's pretty fried usually. And then it's like, well, I worked all day, and that went okay, and I was able to distract myself with work. Now I need to go and study the scripture for a sermon I'm going to prepare, which takes focus, right? or any one of the number of readings and books and hobbies and different things that I like to do and want to do in order to learn, because I love to learn, and I have to focus, but I can't. So what do I do? I distract myself. Watch videos, watch movies, watch shows, read brain candy books that don't cause you to have to focus. And at some point, I get to a place Where I look forward to that beyond all things in the day. I want that distraction so that I get tired enough that I can pass out and go to sleep. That becomes an idol in my life because instead of seeking the Lord Jesus Christ for my satisfaction and my comfort, I'm seeking distraction and entertainment in order to help me cope with the problem. Now, doing those things is fine as long as I keep my focus properly on the cross. As long as I'm saying, God, I pray that you would help me with this problem tonight and I want you to lead me in what it is that I participate in in order to cope with it at this particular point. And I've prayed thousands of times for God to just heal that. And he just decided not to do that so far. I don't think anything negative about God for that because he is taking care of me. He does love me. I know he loves me. I don't have to guess. So this is a something in my life that I confess to you has been an idol at various times and it goes like this. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. I want us to look in our own hearts and figure out what it is that we deal with that become idols. And I think for most of us, the same things become idols over and over. And then, and then you go, oh, oh, I'm, I'm, this is wrong. I'm not focusing properly on God. I haven't prayed for four days. What's going on? And then you get back and you ask God to forgive you. You repent. That's what's going on in this package. God wants us to do what Jacob did. Get all the idols, go give them to Christ, and he hides them from us. They're gone. This is the same idea as when when he says, take up your cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? You have to pick it up. It doesn't just sit there and automatic. It's a choice you have to make. You have a choice of keeping your sinful self crucified with Christ, or you let it down off the cross and hang out, go to lunch, get a cup of coffee. Same thing. We have to make a choice on a daily basis about whether we're going to give in to idolatry, we're going to give into our sinful nature, or we're going to continually focus on Christ and ask him to help us. So i have the worship team come up. We're going to pray. And I will be allowing the worship to continue the whole way through. I'm not going to come back up and say anything more. I'm done for now. So I just want us to focus and think about the possibility of having idols in your life right now and what those might be and how you might deal with them. And maybe you don't have any. And maybe not having them in your life is so important to you that it's an idol. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Hmm. Right? This gets tricky. This is not easy. So let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your love. I praise you for the fact that I'm one of your children. I praise you for the fact that you discipline me when I need it. And I thank you that that discipline is actually proof to me that you are my father. I don't have to guess when I'm being disciplined that you love me. It's not fun, but it is needful. I pray for all of us here, God. I pray that you would help us through your spirit to show us the things that we are elevating above you in our hearts, in our minds and that we would put that back in the proper perspective, we would repent of that, we would turn that over to you, and that you would then continue to guide us in truth, Lord. There is no no one more worthy than you. Anything else that we worship is a sin, because if you do not worship the thing that is most important in the entire universe, you are now worshiping a lesser creation. You are worshiping an idol. We don't want to do that, Father. I pray you'd bless this worship time. I pray that you would empower the musicians, empower these songs that would fill up our hearts because music is such a wonderful gift that you've given us. And we can praise you and worship you through it. In Jesus' name, amen.